Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Jessica Cording is a registered dietitian, health coach, and author with a passion for helping people simplify their wellness routine and build a sustainable, healthy habits. She's the author of an incredibly moving book titled The Farewell Tour, a caregiver's guide to stress management, sane nutrition, and better sleep. Jess, welcome back. Yeah, it's so nice to be here, Jason. So I found your book to be incredibly moving and I think a great resource for a lot of people who are struggling with illness, specifically terminal illness in their their families. Um, So so let's start there with the story of, of, of your dad. Yeah, well, you know, my dad was, he's a stubborn Greek Italian man, you know, five foot five at his tallest, but just one of these people who was just larger than life, you know, um, he, he grew up working class on Long Island and, um, you know, he, he actually, his folks worked like multiple jobs, but they, you know, showed dogs on the weekends. It was like their weird side hobby. So he kind of grew up taking care of animals and thought maybe he'd become a veterinarian, but he, you know, went to vets, he went to college and realized very quickly that school was not for him and found his way into you know, the communications field. You know, he'd been really, he loved sports. He was even scouted for minor league baseball, but was too short to actually play. Um, but he found his way, you know, he thought he'd do sports journalism, but he found his way to music. Um, and my folk, my parents actually met when my mom was a program director at her college radio station. And my dad was working at Polydor Records at the time and on the promotion side. And they, you know, developed a, a friendship professionally. And, um, and I tell the story in the book, you know, they finally met in person at a press junket for a band, The, the Jam. And uh, it was kind of, you know, that was kind of where that started. And, um, you know, it was, working this book was very interesting for me as a, you know, because I knew him as my father, you know, and I, who was, he was just very loving and open and warm, you know, definitely had a fiery side. I mean, you know, he was a Libra, but I, I would not be surprised to learn he was had like sad rising or something. But, um, to learn about who he was professionally was, you know, we could get into that, you know, later. Um, but, you know, just in the music business where he did promotion work, um, you know, he, his friends, uh, colleagues, you know, when I interviewed them for this, the, there are parts of the book that are more like story, say more personal as opposed to just how to, and they all just, you know, spoke about how much he loved the music, not just the business. And, um, you know, he really went to bat for his artists and was very, personable and creative and caring in that realm too. And just, they shared some really, really great stories with me that there was not room for in the book. Um, but yeah, my father was not uh, one for self-care, I'll say. Uh, the music industry is really tough on the artists. It's tough on the industry people. Um, and you know, that, that lifestyle, um, you know, that wear and tear, I definitely saw the toll that it took on him growing up. My father was not into drugs and alcohol. Um, everyone I spoke to was so interesting. They all said the same thing. Like, yeah, your dad, not into that stuff. Um, and, but still the long hours, the crummy food, the, you know, all the different things that come with being on the road a lot. It was, it was tough. So he, um, but, you know, the, the book really starts, my father was diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer when he was 61 years old. 
Um, and, you know, with a lot of these gastrointestinal cancers, by the time they're found, um, you know, they're very sneaky cancers. You know, they tend to, like, like often happens, it had metastasized to just wherever it wanted. You know, so his doctors told us that surgery was not an option. Um, they had some trial drugs, chemotherapy to offer, but it was, you know, they, they were really straight with us. They, they said, you know, to date, no one has survived this, <laughs> you know, and I, which is an interesting thing to say, because usually we'll talk about survival rates in terms of, you know, five-year periods. Um, but it put things in perspective really quickly. You know, I think some health conditions, you know, there's this um, idea that you can, you know, you can fight it, you can beat it. And this was a little bit different. Um, and I, uh, it really highlighted the importance of quality of life and being together. And as I shared in the book, it really caused, you know, my mother, my sister and I to just really throw our lives upside down to take care of them. So managing stress in a situation where a loved one is diagnosed with a terminal illness is difficult, obviously, for, for anyone. Do, do you think there are a unique set of challenges for someone like yourself who's facing that? But, you know, you're an RD, you're an expert in nutrition. Do you think because of your, your background and skill set that the challenges were different? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, I thought, you know, I had, at that, at the time my dad was diagnosed, I was in my third or fourth year working as uh, one of my roles when I was working like seven days a week doing many different things. But I was a dietitian from ALS clinic. And, you know, which is a, a, literally, I would get to know my patients and their families better, you know, as I watched them die a slow, painful death. You know, it was like, I thought it was great practice for if any of my, my loved ones ever became sick with something really, um, you know, terminal. And I, I had a lot to learn, turned out. But what was unique about being a dietitian in the, the caregiving role was on the one hand, I think part of it was knowing too much, like knowing all the things that can go wrong, but also I think um, understanding some of the lifestyle factors involved in disease risk, you know, that I did struggle with some guilt, you know, then I should talk about this in the book, just of being like, wow, I'm, I'm a licensed professional and I couldn't save my father. like. How, how did I go wrong? You know, that was something I, I struggled a lot with. Um, and when it came to managing his symptoms, his side effects of the medications, because there were many, um, you know, I had some good clinical understanding of things that could help, things that might not be so helpful. And every person is different, you know, when they are in the patient role. And some, you know, in the cancer world, you know, you have a lot of people sign up for like the lifestyle change, right? Like they change their diet, they, you know, change their daily habits. And my dad's not about that. You know, he just, um, and I, I had to learn to take a step back and to, to really let him know that I was there to meet him where he wanted to be met, but that um, I needed to let him lead. And that was, that letting go was really you know, that was very, it took some, some learning. There's a learning curve. Yeah. You know, we have Melissa Urban on the, the next show that's going to drop and she wrote an incredible book on boundaries. And I brought up the, this, this very subject of navigating boundaries with a family member who is maybe not necessarily being as healthy as they could be. 
and you, and it's someone you love and they're making decisions that you know just aren't the right decisions. How do you broach that? And she had a pretty hard line and that line was, you don't. Uh, and I was like, really, you know? And, you know, unless that person wants to, wants to make change or ask for your help, even though it may be really, really painful, you kind of got to stay out of it. And again, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I understand where she's coming from. It's hard. It's really hard. And so, you know, what I, what came to mind for me in, in, in hearing you speak and reading the book was, so you're, you're too knowledgeable and that's hard to deal with the loved one in those conversations and how do we navigate this or how do we manage this and knowing to your point, all the things that can go wrong. So it's like dealing with the, with the patient, the person you love. And then there's the other side with navigating conversations with doctors and caregivers and people, many of them, there are a lot of them out there who are doing fabulous work, but unfortunately there's a large segment of that population who doesn't really know much or care about care about the work you do i do we do all of our listeners believe in you know where it's you know you just have to go to a cafeteria in a hospital and you'll you'll you'll, you'll see what i mean so so how do you find that that was interesting you know i will say his team was pretty open-minded you know certain disciplines are more open to all the complementary and alternative therapies and you know, not that nutrition is a complementary therapy by any means, but I do find in the oncology space, there does seem to be more respect for nutrition um, than maybe some others. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, we won't, we won't go there today. But, um, but that's, you know, I found, um, I definitely, again, I was asking a lot of questions. I was hounding his labs. I've always wanted to ask about the, the labs and the drugs and, um, drug nutrient interactions, you know, so I kind of, I, I remember that sometimes I would probably annoy my, my folks I'd sit there in the doctor's office with them, like just, you know, they would be asking their questions like, well, I have a whole other list of questions for you. Um, and it was, um, but I will say by and large, the doctors that we worked with on this team were very, you know, very respectful of answering and addressing all of our questions. Um, you know, he worked with a nurse practitioner very closely who was such a, so helpful. Um, and I did feel like in that way, you know, there, I didn't struggle. I didn't butt heads with the doctors very much, which was really good. Um, you know, but honestly, I think once they recommended medical marijuana for him, I think that that actually simplified a lot of things for all of us. So, you know, that was an interesting experience to, to go through that with my family. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned nutrient drug interaction because that I think goes way, it goes way beyond just serious terminal illness. I think it's everyday prescriptions doctors, in my opinion, don't talk enough when someone goes to a prescription of like, they don't talk enough about absorption, about what foods to kind of avoid. You have to kind of read the fine print of prescription and really pay attention. Then you have to be educated like, well, does this food have iron? Does this have potassium? Like, and then, and that's something we don't, in my, in my experience, doctors don't do well. Oh, yeah, I see that all the time. Like, I have so many patients who are taking medications where they're, 
seen significant drug um, nutrient interactions or drug food interactions. And it's like, um, wow, they, like, I, I was like, I thank God for the masks that I still have to wear in appointments sometimes because it's like, I, it helps me hide the shock like, of myself behind the mask sometimes. But yeah, like, you know, you do have to ask and advocate for yourself or for your loved one because some practitioners are wonderful and will give all that information and others, I think, it's not top of mind for them. So they don't think to mention it because they've got so many other things on their mind. You know, in, in this process, you, you detail the stress that you experienced and you, you write about this in, in the book. And, and I completely agree, agree with this is that stress manifests itself differently in different ways. Uh, you know, for, for me, I believe that stress finds its weak spots in my body when I'm stressed in different periods. How, how did you view stress and how did it manifest itself for you? Yeah, well, ironically, you know, stress reduction has been a part of what I do for my patients and clients like, since the beginning, you know, and it was like, I was aware that caregiver burnout was a thing, but it manifested in ways that felt out of my control. Let's talk about weak spots. You know, I've been a lifelong sufferer of insomnia, you know, and as I've gotten older, I've understood the ideology of it for myself. I've been able to manage it better, but man, I struggled so much with insomnia. Like I think my dad's illness, you know, it lasted, our, our you know, farewell tour experience lasted for 15 months. And throughout that entire time, I don't think I was able to sleep with the lights off. Like it was every time I would turn over to like turn the lamp off, my brain would light up like, like a Christmas tree. And so I just slept with the lights on the entire time. And I did, and I, you know, when you're not sleeping well, you experience changes in immune system function, cognitive function. Um, you know, you're not thinking clearly. I know I ended up with a really bad, um, from my sister's wedding, I ended up with an infection from a manicure that got so bad, I had to get fingernail removed. I was on antibiotics. I was on like four rounds of antibiotics after having not had any for seven years, probably. You know, my gut health was destroyed. Um, so it was like I had to get a root canal. It was like a whole cascading effect, and I think a lot of it stemmed from the the stress sleep cycle that I got caught up in. And I was also drinking too much coffee and I hadn't really, I was still drinking alcohol at that point. So um, that definitely did not help. Even though I didn't drink um, much or by myself, like I did, you know, use, um, you know, meeting friends for drinks as a way to unwind. And that did not help my sleep at all. And so what ultimately like worked for you in terms of all the, the tools in your toolkit and what didn't work? And helping you manage stress, you know, everyone's got their go-tos. What, 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 what ultimately worked for you to help you manage? Because you can't eliminate stress; you can only manage it. Yes, I, I get so frustrated when I hear practitioners say to reduce your stress. I'm like, excuse me, what planet are you living on where we are able to actually like eliminate stressors? Like, it's all about the management. And as a dietitian and health coach, I did have a good understanding of the role that food can play. You know, I, I, and I definitely. Um, in the book, I share a lot of the importance of blood sugar with stress response and stress management. Um, so focusing on having a balance of protein, fat, complex carbohydrates spread through the day, uh, limiting sugar. If that was, those things were huge for me. Um, you know, but uh, staying hydrated, that was a big thing. 
um, you know, and incorporating specific foods that were helpful for stress response, like omega-3 fatty acids. Um, I got really into um, frozen berries. I think I was just <laughs> craving the antioxidants, um, a lot of fermented foods, prebiotic rich foods. Um, and then I, I also exercise, you know, we have so much research on the mental and physical benefits of exercise. And I definitely lean into that. Um, you know, I was probably doing a little too much cardio because <laughs> that was, a as a Sagittarius and a queen of overuse injuries, like I just found, I found that repetition like very soothing, but I also was doing a lot of Pilates, um, you know, yoga, you know, and those were good counterbalances. Um, for that and strength training, you know, that's always been a good stress reliever for me. Um, so I would say that that nutrition and exercise worked very well for me. But then, um, you know, my sleep was shot. I tried everything. If CBD had been more widely available or if I had sought medical marijuana prescription, like I think both of those things might have benefited me. Um, but no, I... You know, I tried all the sleep hygiene stuff that was a, a more widely available at that time, um, you know, but really, like, I found that um, I might, I don't want to say my fatal flaw, but something that I have noticed in myself when I get stressed or feel overwhelmed or out of control is I get to work. <laughs> and uh, I think I poured a lot of energy into distracting myself with work, even though I was there for my dad i um uh, i definitely kept busy and that was at the time i think it felt like it was working but in retrospect it did not work very well at all wow so in terms of diet it sounds like you were doing a lot of the right things you know having your healthy fats your omega-3s your antioxidants your berries and you know i, I think for many people it, it's it's just it's common sense you know, okay, yeah, I need to eat well when I'm stressed, but when it comes down to it, when you're in that moment, it can often be difficult, especially when you have that craving. And so can you talk a bit more about food food cravings and specifically the difference between physical and emotional cravings and, and how to deal with both? Yeah, cravings are fascinating. I, I It blows my mind that as a culture, there's still this emphasis that we should be trying to crush them or conquer them. And like, I just, that does not work. Um, but they're, they're giving us clues as to things that we want or need, whether that's physical, mental. Um, so in the book, I do share that some of the specific foods I was craving were sardines packed in olive oil. I don't know why. I didn't even know until that point. If I was like, I was 31 years old when my dad was diagnosed, I couldn't stop eating them. It's such a nutritious food to crave. It's like, if you're talking about nutrient density, sardines, if you eat sardines, like that's kind of a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is a because I was just kind of mentally prepared. I was like, okay, people crave like junk food when they're stressed. So that was a surprise, you know? Um, I, so that, you know, I was like, okay, so let's, I, you know, I got curious. I was like, all right, why do I want these? Okay, omega-3s, vitamin D, B12, protein, like all things I, can use right now. Um, and, but, you know, I also found myself really, um, I suddenly developed a taste for butter, which was very interesting, not something I was used to cooking with. Like, I was, for some reason, one of the foods I really wanted to eat all the time was radishes cooked in butter. I, it was the most random thing. 
Um, so that was something that was interesting. And I, I will say my LDL cholesterol did go up a little bit during that time. And I don't know if it was from the butter, but that was something I experienced. Not that I'm anti-butter by any stretch, but it was just unusual. And I think I have a tendency, I think, to crave high energy foods when stressed, you know, and that's a very physiological response. You know, other examples of physical cravings, you know, if um, a woman craves steak around her menstrual cycle, you know, that can sometimes um, try to need more iron. Um, but then with, you know, emotional cravings, um, you know, you're looking at things like, are there foods that you associate with simpler times, happy memories, you know, and often that might be uh, with more quote unquote fun foods, you know, like, like ice cream and cookies and snack foods um, or nostalgic foods like the pb and j sandwich like a, you know a lot of people crave things again nothing wrong with pb and j but you know craving things that we have more um more emotions tied to um or you know with carb cravings though you know carbohydrate you know plays a role in the way that our body produces and utilizes serotonin and other nutrients that impact our mood and i you know, I've had the conversation with patients so many times when they notice they're craving carbs. You know, we talk about, okay, how's your mood? What's going on in your life? You know, do you have a history of, you know, seasonal affective disorder or mood disorder? And kind of really unpacking that piece of it too. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, right? Like you might have a craving that's both physical and emotional in nature. And, you know, how do you respond? But I always encourage getting curious about the craving and just really being honest with yourself. I think if we tune out the noise about what we should, shouldn't be eating, and just really listen to what our body is telling us, asking us, you know, that's gonna give us a clue as to how to respond. Um, sometimes it is worth it to just, if it's an unhealthy food, um, but you're really fixated on it, you know, just to have a serving of that food and move on with your life, you know, as, as best you can. And other times where it's something that comes up more often and it might be, um, you know, something that you know is not gonna necessarily be helpful to you to you know continuously indulge that craving i do encourage thinking about what specifically about that food is appealing you know is it a texture is it a flavor or is there a nutrient in there that maybe you really need um and that gives you some clues as to maybe some healthier versions that you might consider having to satisfy that craving so that's just a few things i've used with patients and clients and something that's worked for me is this idea of when in doubt just drink water <laughs> or or for me i love black coffee I, I love coffee and i could drink quite a bit uh and i have no problem sleeping and i don't get anxious uh, so so coffee is a number two for me like when in doubt like if it's if it's the mid-afternoon as long as it's not too late you know drink water or maybe have a cup of coffee and try to like understand what's really going on here yeah give yourself a little time to kind of like let the the brain and the body communicate a little bit figure it out and so going back to like this process you went through you know i think so many of us are inclined to just try to fix everything and you have a chapter title which i loved fix what you can can you elaborate on fix what you can? I think there's such a great lesson there for us. Yeah, well, you know, as you said, there's there's this like desire to fix the problems, and I I'm a fixer. I you know I just like I I hate problems I can't fix and the puzzles I can't solve. Like that's the stuff that'll keep me up at night. 
Um, but there's always going to be things that we can't fix, you know, whether it's things we can't fix for ourselves, things we can't fix for others, for the world, right? Um, and I, I find that there is tremendous power in fixing the little things that we can do something about. Um, you know, and a lot of that comes down to, you know, identifying the stuff that we can, that we can't fix. But for the things that we can do something about, coming up with a plan to address that specific thing. And it just can be so empowering and heartening when you can show yourself that you can make a small change. And, you know, obviously this can translate in so many different ways. But I think for caregivers, it's especially important because when you feel out of control or you feel like you're not doing it right or you're getting it all wrong, not doing enough, um, fixing the things that you can fix can be a really powerful mindset shift. And in terms of building healthier habits for yourself, you know, supporting your loved ones, a little can really go a long way too. And what have you learned about end of life care? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. Uh, a lot of people aren't excited to talk about it or learn about it, myself included. I, I'm in that camp. Like, I don't, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what have you learned about end of life care? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, I feel like even in the medical field, like we talk about this sometimes, like, um, you know, sometimes my colleagues and I will talk about like, what would you want if like this was you and I remember when I was working at the ALS clinic, like sometimes we would, you know, play the game, like, do I have ALS or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? And we, you know, kind of talk about that stuff. But um, end of life care, we live in a culture that tries to avoid talking about death. Um, and that's it's so interesting because death is such a part of life. Um, and I think it looks different for each person. You know, some of the things I share in the book are things like, having conversations with your loved one about what they what they want you know what their their desires their hopes are their goals um, but i do think it's important to let them lead um, you know i think that that's it's a very it's a very personal topic and it's it's fraught with so many different emotions um, but i do think and this is you know from being a family member side of the system being a clinician watching patients' families go through this, that it is important to, to talk through some of the logistics, as grim as it might be. Um, I know with my parents, you know, they spent some time talking about what to do about different accounts and passwords. And my dad was very specific about social media. Like he um, he said to my mother, he's like, you know, I want you to shut down my, my Facebook page. I don't want it to be like an effing memorial page. But he wanted her to maintain his Spotify account because that was where he had made all these playlists that, you know, like friends and family could listen to. So the music piece was important to him. Um, but talking about, you know, what you believe, what you think comes next, um, that can be, for some people, very healing. My dad was not super into that part. Um, but interestingly, he um, converted to Catholicism the last six months of his life. That was kind of how he knew he knew that it was things were winding down for him. Um, he was pretty orthodox and had been very resistant to converting because he knew it would like piss off my grandfather. And after my grandfather passed away, maybe a few weeks later, my dad announced he was going to convert to Catholicism. So we would all be the same thing. And I didn't grow up in a very religious family. Um, it's more that my mother wanted us to have a spiritual frame of reference and then make up our own minds, kind of, you know based off of our own experiences. But um, 
it was really interesting to see him go through that. And we teased him at first, but you know, the day that he passed, we, you know, we had a Catholic priest at the bedside and we were all there and it was, um, it was not just about the religion. It was really about, you know, sharing the energy and being together. And, um, I think sometimes exploring spirituality can be an important part of the end of life process. You know, you mentioned the end of life process and frame of reference. And I think of the title, Farewell Tour. I thought it was such an interesting and beautiful frame to think about the end of life journey. So let's just spend a moment there and, and clue us into the conversation you have with your dad and how you thought about the farewell tour. Yeah, well, and this was probably the last, you know, last few, last few months of his life after, after, you know, he became the new Catholic. Um, I was at his house because I, I split my time basically from New York and New Jersey, kind of going back and forth and shifting, like, taking shifts with my mom and sister. Um, and I remember one day I was in his kitchen and he's, he was on the phone and he's, you know, talking to somebody and he hangs up and he kind of chuckles to himself you know he's grabbing ice cream bar from the fridge you know it's just kind of it's like man once they figure out once they know you're dying everybody wants a piece of you so we just started calling it the farewell tour i don't know my family has always used gallows humor to cope and uh it just became a joke again my, my dad really wanted to live the rest of his life on his own terms and you know maintain the type of social interactions he wanted to maintain and did not spend his time on stuff he thought he should do you know it was um it was kind of a good model you know just to kind of uh, if it's not a it's not a yes it's a hell no kind of thing you know that was his attitude i just thought it was so nice given you know his career in the music business and the idea of you know the farewell tour it's on, on some regards it's it's sad this band is is no longer this is it but it's also celebratory and it was just for me, I was like, it's such a beautiful frame um, and view when you're nearing end of life. Well, you know, to your point, we like being on tour with a band, like there's a lot of craziness and chaos and organization, but there's just these incredible moments and memories and just really special little spots in time that are, you know, I think knowing with the farewell tour, it really highlights that even more. And, and something I so appreciated in the book, I thought was very unique and I found to be fascinating is you, you literally conducted all these interviews of personalities in the music in industry and you asked them questions, which they probably don't get very often around health challenges uh, of touring, you know, the health challenges, the mental, emotional challenges of being a musician. And you know, you talked to John Mellencamp and Elvis Costello. I was like, wow, this is so interesting. And their answers were fascinating. I'm curious, from your point of view, of all those interviews, what did you find to be the most interesting to you or surprising in, in terms of the responses? Yeah, that's such a great question. Because, you know, it's interesting. When you write a book, you know, your contract says, this is how many books you have. And my first draft went over by about 25,000 words. Wow, that's big time over. Yeah, but a big part of that was, you know, the artists that I spoke with. These are all, you know, for the for the most part, I think there's one or two exceptions. Um, people that worked with my dad for 
decades, you know, knew him so well, had known him longer than I did, you know, and we're just very generous with their time and their energy, like Elvis um, and Willie Nile, you know, um, they, you know, they spent like a couple hours on the phone or on Zoom with me, t- you know, telling stories and answering my questions and sharing their insights. Um, and but there were some really interesting threads that I noticed. Um, you know, to your point, yes, like they all like, oh, you know, like, don't really get asked about this that often. But um, they were, so for example, I noticed quite a few of the artists I spoke with and industry people, um, you know, shared that um, having to come to a place where they gave up drugs and alcohol or stopped drinking, stopped, you know, participating in the, the lifestyle, you know, and I think I was not surprised to, um, to hear that, you know, hear them say, well, it's a job, it's hard work, like you can't, you know, be partying all night and then, um, you know, get up early to do press the next day and then do a show. Um, you know, so that was something that I think people who maybe didn't grow up around the industry might be a little surprised by, um, you know, or that they don't, you know, when they go to a city, they don't get to see the city, right? They see a venue. Um, but additionally, you know, a question that I didn't really get to, um, I didn't really get to leave in the book. Um, this was one of the things that had to go on the, the first draft uh, to, to live its live out its life. Um, I asked them all how the creative process was impacted by being on the road, um, and interestingly, I was. This is what I was surprised by. Um, I was expecting them to say that there was a negative impact of being on the road on their creativity, and without exception, they all said that actually being on being on the road really, in a lot of ways, seemed to help their creativity, or that it did not negatively impact it. That that was sort of a, you know, they shared their different strategies with me for like capturing ideas and writing when they're traveling, and that was that was really um, that was really unique. That is interesting. I guess it makes sense. You know, you're seeing different places. You're stimulated. I think monotony is probably the enemy of creativity in some ways. But like being exposed visually to new uh, landscapes, experiences, people, like kind of maybe helps. That's my guess. They also all wanted to know what song was playing when my father died. I I was very struck by. like I, I, I hadn't expected to talk about the fact that we were literally blasting music in the ICU the day that he passed away, um, literally. <laughs> and I, um, yeah, but they all wanted to know what song was playing. And the interesting thing is, I can't remember. Um, I know that my dad was really into jazz in the last few months of his life. Like we had, we've been playing classic rock all day for him. Um, but he had like made a jazz playlist you know, maybe a few weeks prior, and he had never been into jazz. Like, he was always listening to new music, but it was, um, you know, a, a track, no words, nothing I recognized, you know, musically. And I remember at the time, you know, being there and just kind of in a weird way being relieved that I didn't recognize the song because then I just felt like, how could I ever hear that song again and not be in that moment? Uh, that said, there's other songs from that day that, bring me right back but um it was it was interesting to have those conversations and everybody wanted to know that 
Well, I love in the book how you share a lot of his favorites and you share a playlist and we have to, we will, we must put in the show notes. We have to put your dad's Spotify in the show notes because I'm, I'm reading his favorites and some of the bands we work with. I'm like, oh, great taste of music. Uh, like Pink Floyd. I, I went to that. I remember seeing that. I was on that tour. I saw Pink Floyd twice. You talk about the division bell. I think that tour in 94, I saw them at Yankee Stadium uh, and Foxborough. I saw them twice. Well, I mean, how could you not like the opportunity? Gosh. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, I, I I was eighteen years old, nineteen years old at the time, so you can only imagine the amount of me back then and the the, the amount of alcohol consumed for one of them. For what the other one, I was sober, uh, but for one, uh, but wow, great! What such a tremendous experience you must have had. So, in closing. For anyone going through this right now with a loved one who's who's facing, you know, an unsurmountable illness or something that may be terminal, what, what advice do you have for someone going through this? Yeah, I think, you know, regardless of how much time you know you have or don't have, you know, really focus on taking it one day at a time, one hour at a time if you need. And to go back to what we were discussing earlier, like, Focus on what you can do. Um, it can be so overwhelming to think about all the things that are beyond your control or that you feel you're not doing well. Um, and just really do what you can and you know, remind yourself that that's enough. Jess, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Jason. <laughs> 